Hello and welcome to Mother Bodies, the podcast about health after birth and why it matters. I'm your host, Rosie Taylor. I'm a health journalist and I'm also a mum. In this series, I'm asking some brilliant, wise and witty guests to share their thoughts on how the politics of postnatal health affects us all and the big ideas which could change our lives for the better. Most importantly, we'll also be sharing our own stories of health and recovery after birth and our honest experiences of motherhood. That's because it's only by sharing our stories that we can empower each other to ensure we all know what to expect and to make sure we all get the care and support we need, both after birth and throughout motherhood. This is Mother Bodies. So I'm thrilled to have here with me today Leah Hazard. Leah is a practicing NHS midwife working in Scotland and if she wasn't busy enough working night shifts and helping people bring new life into the world, she's also the host of the podcast What the Midwife Said and the author of Hard Pushed, A Midwife Story. Her next book, Womb, The Inside Story of Where We All Began, will be published next year. Hi Leah, it's lovely to have you here today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So I'm really intrigued because you used to work in television and then you mm-hmm. made a sort of hard swivel to midwifery. Um, was there anything about your own experience of having children that made you decide to go into midwifery and helping other people go through birth? Definitely. I would say there was everything about my own experience that prompted that career pivot. So, I mean, I always had an interest in women's health on a kind of abstract level or maybe more to do with kind of sexual and reproductive health but not really pregnancy and birth as such and then when I had my first daughter in 2003 although I felt I'd been really well prepared and done all my homework and gone to all the right classes the experience itself both the birth and the postnatal period was nothing at all like I'd prepared for and I I felt completely broken, confused, upset, angry about the way that I felt my preparation and the system had failed me. And at that time, when I was sort of talking to other women who'd had babies around the same time from my antenatal class and things, it seemed like every one of us had had a very similar experience in that we thought we had been really well prepared. And then in the end up, we hadn't been and we'd had some pretty bad experiences. And I did go back to work in television and I I became sort of increasingly disillusioned with that for various reasons and more and more obsessed with this conundrum of why the maternity service was not working to my mind the way it should, at least for some people. And I really felt that maybe this was the right path for me and and maybe I could help change things for certain people. So, So yeah, I would say my own experience had a huge part to play. And what you're saying about talking to your antenatal class friends and sort of hearing that everyone had the same experience. I mean, I feel that that's possibly something that a lot of women who've even given birth today, you know, nearly 20 years later, would echo as well. I mean, is that something that you feel is still an issue today? Yeah, I mean, that's true, but depressing (laughs) in the fact that many people still feel really grossly unprepared for the actual experience of pregnancy, birth and and postnatal period. And um, I do think that some things are better and some things work better than they did. But unfortunately, some things are much worse. We know that the maternity services suffer badly from chronic underfunding, under-resourcing, 
not being prioritised generally through the last few years of Tory governments. Um, maternity services traditionally have been the kind of poor relation of the NHS, I would say because they're female centred and female staffed predominantly. That has not changed. And unfortunately, we're now reaping the, the consequences of these years. So although there are many really, really skilled, wonderful, dedicated midwives trying to make things better on the shop floor, we alone can't surmount these obstacles which are enormous and systemic. So yeah, I mean, I think it's depressing that women still feel this sense of confusion or upset or disappointment about the way they've moved through the system. But those kinds of systemic problems, unfortunately, are beyond my remit. And I, I have tried in my own very small way to make a change. And I, I certainly hope that I've made some individual differences to the people in my care. But systemically, these are issues that are too big for any one person. In your book, Hard Pushed, you talk about the postnatal ward being a place that dreams can be made, but more often than not, that they're broken. And certainly that sort of echoed with my own personal experience. I feel like the postnatal ward was almost where it all started to go horribly wrong. Um, and I just wondered what your perspective was as a midwife sort of currently working in the NHS. What is it about postnatal ward specifically that means people have such a negative experience? And, and is there anything that we can do to put it right? I mean, historically, postnatal care has been known even within sort of maternity research circles as the Cinderella sector of maternity care because it's almost as if the clock has struck midnight you've been to the ball you've had your baby this big exciting thing has happened and then it's much less glamorous afterwards you know cinderella's coach turns back into a pumpkin and her dress turns back to rags and oh all of a sudden you're just this sore bleeding sutured tired person and because generally hospitals and birth units are so busy and oversubscribed, although the staff more often than not are, are again very skilled and empathetic and compassionate and hardworking, the, the pressure on them is throughput. The pressure on them is to tick certain boxes and get you and baby safely out the door. And that pressure then continues in community because the community midwives then have all these people to look after who've been ejected from the hospital probably quite early on um, with issues and complications that maybe could have been prevented had that not been the case. So again, not to fault the actual staff who are working in these wards. And again, you know, there will be a, a range of experiences. Some will be great, some will be not so great. But I think systemically, the fact that there's this pressure of throughput and footfall and volume on the postnatal end of things means that quite often women don't get the time and care that they really deserve at that stage when they are really, really vulnerable and have really complex needs. And like you said, so many of us feel very unprepared for that experience of how we'll feel immediately after having a baby. I mean, in your experience, what is it that women and birthing people are most shocked or surprised by in terms of their physical or their sort of emotional experience in their first hours, I guess, or days after birth? A big one is feeding. I am personally and professionally an advocate of breastfeeding, but I think that the women who choose to breastfeed are often really surprised by how time consuming it is, how frequently a newborn baby feeds, how painful it can be sometimes, how it's not always just natural and easy to get things right. And even women who are formula feeding, I think women are often really surprised by how time consuming infant feeding is in the very early days. I think that there's maybe a misconception or just a, a challenge to grasp 
how frequently newborn babies need to feed and um, also how they don't always feed just for sustenance sometimes they feed for comfort and that's important and that's okay too i think that because we live in this modern western industrialized society we as strong independent women don't always realize or push up against the fact that when you're a new mother and you're feeding a baby physiologically essentially you just need to be a milk machine 24 7. you need to be skin to skin you need to not be cooking cleaning working out taking care of the rest of your family catching up on your emails in order to establish successful feeding again especially breastfeeding you need to be just being that milk thing <laughs> 24 hours a day and that comes as a huge shock to women and it came as a big shock to me as well and there's no judgment here I mean I bottle fed one baby and breastfed another and I understand everybody has to do what's right for them but I think that the feeding thing comes as a huge surprise to people and on top of that as well there's the shock of what your body actually looks like what your belly looks like what your breasts look like how your vulva and your vagina feel especially if you've had a vaginal delivery how your abdominal muscles feel if you've had a cesarean section and emotionally how this experience will change you and your relationship with the people around you so again in answer to your question everything everything changes and it's possible to be prepared or to prepare people for that reality we were just talking about how often people are unprepared and how and you've just very beautifully explained all of the many things that our bodies go through immediately after birth. And there are these huge physiological changes. But I've spoken to quite a lot of people in this research for the show and so many people are sort of like, no one told me about this. I was really surprised about this. Do you think that the education women are getting during pregnancy and before that in school and and earlier is is enough are we adequately preparing each other for what to expect so that it's not a huge emotional shock when it comes no we're trying but we're not doing it well enough and i say that having been that educator so in one of my previous jobs i taught the parent craft classes the antenatal classes and i tried as well as i could to discuss the physical changes and the emotional changes of the postpartum period but i think that even with the best will in the world and being very upfront and being very realistic about things, actually, to be honest, I think birthing people and their partners only take in so much. I think you kind of go, yeah, 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 I'll be fine though. Like that won't be me. I'll cross that bridge when it comes. And understandably, you're excited about meeting your baby and you're thinking of all the good things. And um, I'm not laying the blame at all on the people who are giving birth. I mean, I think the system has a lot to answer for. But I think that is part of it. I think it's difficult to really take on the reality of these things when you're still in that kind of pregnancy bubble. Having said that, I think that the NHS has really fallen down in terms of childbirth preparation over the last couple of years because of COVID. A lot of in-person face-to-face antenatal classes have either disappeared completely or gone online or been offered in a format that's maybe not as helpful. And I think it's really important that you you raise the issue of schools because as far as I'm aware, there's zero education in schools about how a person's body changes in the childbearing year and how your relationships change. There's very little education, if any, about infant feeding or, I mean, even just general gynae health. It's just appalling. So yeah, I think we as a society don't do a very good job of preparing people for the 
reality. And it again, just speaks to our lack of value for birthing bodies and what they do. I totally recognize what you're saying about the antenatal class and sort of thinking, yeah, 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 I'll think about that when I get to it. And, and personally, you know, when I was pregnant, I perhaps was a little superstitious as well. You know, you always don't want to count your chickens and sort of say, well, if if my pregnancy gets a term and if I have a healthy baby and if it all goes okay, then I'll worry about this. I mean, I was certainly guilty of not wanting to really think that far ahead, perhaps. So maybe that is where education much earlier along the line in schools and just sort of normalizing conversations in society about, oh, by the way, breastfeeding looks like this or postpartum bodies actually look like this, not you know, not everybody can look like Kate Middleton standing on the steps a few hours after birth. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that education goes for men and women, because men as well need to understand that's what women's bodies look like and feel like after they give birth. Breastfeeding really does take a village. It's a cliche or, or, you know, in a sense, any kind of infant feeding, you know, that person that's given birth needs a lot of support. They need a lot of time. They need sustenance. They need emotional encouragement. And oftentimes that is lacking from the partner and or you know wider family to an extent not always but sometimes I think it's just a lack of understanding maybe rather than goodwill about how these things work so yeah we need to start much much earlier and for all sexes and all genders. Do you think in terms of feeding support and recognizing that people who are feeding need to basically be lying or sitting down with their babies almost 24 7 especially in those first sort of few days you know historically women stayed in hospital for that time and obviously now they're discharged and you know to a certain extent medical advances mean that that's possible but I'm not sure and I'm interested to know whether you agree whether sort of society's attitudes have caught up and I think perhaps in my mother's generation and her mother's generation certainly you stayed in hospital until you were ready to go home whereas we sort of stay in hospital very, very briefly, go home and then it's almost like society expects us to be, oh, well, that's the time you can cook a meal for the family and go shopping and stuff because that's how it used to be. I mean, I, I don't know whether you yeah. feel that that is the case. It's Yeah, it's so interesting. It's fascinating, actually, how these practices have changed. I mean, I still have colleagues who remember the times when after birth, especially a, an operative birth like forceps or cesarean section, women would stay in hospital for maybe as long as 10 days. And in the afternoon, they would be put down for a nap. <laughs> okay, so all the men and visitors would be shooed out, curtains would be drawn around the bay, babies would be looked after by the staff, and you would have to go to sleep. And then in the afternoon, after your nap, everybody would have a chance to you know, brush their hair or have a shower or whatever. And then you would have your visitors in, and then you would all be given dinner in the dining room. So maybe it was enjoyable or productive or pleasurable in that time and place to stay in hospital longer because it was more of a nurturing environment. I don't know. I wasn't there. But now, I mean, <laughs> hospital isn't like that anymore. So although early discharge has some huge drawbacks, the truth is it's not always the most comfortable, most restful, most healthy place for people to be after they've given birth. So on the one hand, yeah, maybe it is nicer now to be back in your own home and you'll probably get more sleep and you'll be able to use your shower and have, you know, the food that you like. But as you've said, the flip side of that is you've got the washing, you've got maybe your other kids to look after, you've got your partner's needs to attend to, you've got all your family who want to come and visit you and that's maybe causing stress as well. So 
it's really a fine balance and everybody's individual situation will be different. I know some women postnatally who go home and they are expected to cook and clean for a multi-generational household within days of having had their baby. Whereas other women will be able to just lie in bed, skin to skin, feed the baby as and when. And they've got a very supportive partner who will bring them food and juice and, you know, do all the other stuff. So it, it really varies. But I think as time has gone by, there's definitely been more of a push to do things faster, faster, faster. And that's not always good for everyone. No, absolutely. And that probably feeds into my next question, which is asking about this phrase that gets trotted out all the time, which is a healthy baby. That's all that matters, you know, uh, and women's concerns, whether they're physical health concerns or maybe more mental or emotional health concerns can often get played down or even completely dismissed because you've got a healthy baby. What more do you want? I mean, you've written about how you believe there is a lot more to life after birth than this, but can you explain what you mean by that and and what needs to change in our attitudes to new parenthood? Well, funny you should say that because I write about that extensively in my next book, which I can't really talk about in great detail now because it's pretty much embargoed. But generally I can say, yes, of course, everybody wants a healthy, live, well baby. That's not up for debate. That goes without saying. And as a midwife, of course, that's what I want as well. But that isn't the only thing that we should be aiming for. And it's certainly not the only thing that matters to people who give birth. We know that birth is a fundamentally formative, transformative experience on every level of a person's identity. Physically, yes, but also emotionally and psychologically, intellectually, spiritually, professionally, financially, economically, sexually. So to just say all that matters is a healthy baby is reductive and not incredibly helpful. Yes, of course, we all want a live, healthy, well child. That's, as I said, that's not up for debate and I'm not arguing that point, but I think it's it's reductive and it's not always helpful and in some cases can be harmful. In fact, in many cases can be harmful because it trivializes all of the other complex needs of the birthing person and their family. So we we, of course, must always strive for safety, but we also need to look beyond that as well, because it's not just a kind of black and white, is baby alive or not kind of situation. And do you think there are sort of lasting impacts on babies as well, who may be born perfectly healthy, but who are born to parents who are not feeling okay, and perhaps not feeling fully able to care for their babies in the way that they'd like to? Well, I mean, I'm not an expert behavioural psychologist, disclaimer, but I do believe that there is evidence and there is research to suggest that a woman's sort of psychological well-being does have effects short and long-lasting on her child. So again, I think there is evidence around that. I can't specifically report that. But, but yeah, of course, I think what foot you get off on, so to speak, makes a huge difference on the rest of your journey for, for parent and child. And do you think medical professionals in the sort of postnatal period, the first month, six months, year after birth, sort of take the overall picture. You know, for example, I had a friend who had developed a skin condition after birth where her hands were incredibly sore. The doctor sort of said, oh, well, you know, use these creams and make sure you don't touch anything and wear rubber gloves if you're washing, you know, don't wash your hands in water, wear rubber gloves and stuff like this. She just felt so... I don't know, like, no one was listening to the fact that she was saying, but I can't change my baby's nappy. You know, I have a newborn baby and I can't change their nappy. And the doctors are sort of saying, well, you know, find someone else to do it. I mean, do you feel like there is 
an understanding in the wider medical profession of the importance of this period and what it means to parents to be able to fully look after their children. I think it's something we are getting better at. And I think there, there is more dialogue around perinatal mental health, especially postnatal mental health over the last few years. And because we know it has been, unfortunately, one of the leading causes of maternal death in the year after childbirth. So uh, th there's definitely a sort of imperative to do better where this is concerned. Um, midwives, definitely, we are trying. We only look after postnatal people up to sort of 28 days to six weeks after the birth. So we are required to um, discuss mental health in that time period. We try and make referrals where appropriate. Again, there's the pressure of time and the system. And we know people do fall through the cracks sometimes. And then after that, it kind of falls to health visitor and the GP. And I mean, we could do a whole other podcast about the GP crisis and how pushed they are for time and resources. So that's not to let any individual practitioner off the hook. I mean, I'm sorry your friend had not the best experience, but I think we are getting better at these conversations. There has been more funding over the last few years into perinatal mental health hubs for women and birthing people across the UK. Many trusts will have a dedicated perinatal mental health midwife or team or um, specialist psychologist to whom women can be referred. So it's not ideal, but I feel like we're going in the right direction. So I wanted to ask you about your next book, and I know that it's all sort of top secret at the moment, so you <laughs> might not be able to uh, let much on. Womb is going to be a deep dive into the workings and history of the womb, which you describe as the most miraculous and underappreciated organ in the body. And it sounds fascinating, but I did see some press which described people saying they couldn't believe this book hadn't already been written. I mean, from what we've been talking about, the sort of trivializing of women's health issues i kind of can believe it hadn't already been written but it, <laughs> it is kind of astonishing um that no one before you has ever thought to do a proper book about this amazing organ that you know 50 percent of the world's population have so what was it that made you decide you needed to write this book now a great question. It's very exciting for me to talk about the book because this is actually the first podcast that I've done in a while and the first podcast where anyone has asked me about it. So I can speak in kind of general terms. It's out next March in the UK and around the world. And I, after hard pushed, took some time to really think about what I wanted to do next. I knew it was going to be something in the sphere of reproductive health or midwifery or, you know, birth, that kind of world, because that's where I live. I had a few ideas sort of around that theme and my agent was you know, kind of she's she's great at kind of giving me a steer when I maybe haven't had the best idea and I was actually sitting at this very desk one afternoon maybe I was on Twitter probably and uh, I just had this idea and I thought surely somebody has done this book I mean it seems like it's the most obvious thing it's right in front of you it's 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 the thing it's the organ that, that does all this and to, to great extent controls our lives and um, it's, I would say, the most widely legislated organ in the human body. It influences vast swathes of social policy and the directions that our culture goes in. And I actually, I still have the email. It was like three lines. I just fired it off to my agent and I said, you know, this is the idea. Why has nobody written this book? Of course, it would be written by me. What do you think? <laughs> and she's kind of like, oh, that's kind of interesting. I'm going to run that by the team. And um, the more people she spoke to, that that really was the universal response was, surely this book has been written before. And then why has this book not been written before? Yeah, I think it just comes down to 
our lack of regard for women's bodies, birthing bodies, um, sexual and gynecological health. And I think when we think of the body, we think of very esteemed old white men from the 1800s, you know, leaning over cadavers in a, an anatomy lab or doing fancy things in an operating theatre. And yes, my book includes all these things as well. But that's really not the full story for women and for people with uteruses and for us as a society. So I decided I would take a little look into it. And it's a book that really has grown arms and legs. I mean, of course, it's a much bigger project than I could have ever imagined. And I could write 100 volumes about the uterus. So I had to kind of, (laughs) although the idea of doing a huge series is appealing, I had to narrow it down to one book for the reader's sake. You'll be glad to know. I found it really fascinating. And I would say the main thing that I learned was how much I actually didn't know to begin with. I was going to ask you this question because as a midwife who has obviously been trained, you know, as a specialist really in how the womb works, how much of what you found in your research was new to you? Oh, I would say like 85%. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. As you said, you know, I'm a midwife. It's my bread and butter. It's what I do all day long. I also really geek out about women's health. So I I read pretty widely around it. And although I definitely knew enough to know the direction I wanted to go in and to write a kind of chapter structure and so on, when I started actually researching the book, I was blown away. I think from the day it was commissioned, I was emailing my editor saying, guess what I just found out and look what I'm writing about today and this is amazing and you know sending them all these crazy links to all this wild information so I thought well if I don't know this then chances are that many other people don't know this and I want to tell you so hopefully the book will be informative and entertaining and I'm really proud of all the kind of experts that have contributed to it as well there's just so much to learn so looking forward to sharing it. I can't wait to read it. It sounds absolutely fascinating. I just wondered in your research, I mean, something that I've come up across a lot in my work as a journalist is that quite often I go to find the evidence about something to do with postnatal health and it's actually not really there. A lack of research is a major problem in women's health generally, but particularly in the sort of maternal health sphere, I find. When you were researching for Womb, were there lots of gaps did you find or did you just sort of manage to find all the information you were looking for, but perhaps in slightly more unusual places. I imagine you sort of leafing through dusty parchments in a library or something like that. I did do that. Yeah, I did do that, actually. There were gaps and I did find some fascinating information and accounts of lived experience in really unusual places everywhere from the weirdest corners of Instagram to the dusty shelves in the Welcome Collection in London, which is a huge kind of repository for all kinds of medical texts and, and books. So yeah, I had to sort of search high and low for the information I was looking for. There are huge gaps. There's still so much we don't understand about the way the uterus works and what it does. Although what I will say was really impressive is how much we can learn, even given the tiniest amount of funding and enthusiasm. Because in the course of my research, I spoke to some really amazing researchers, predominantly women, who are looking at things like the uterine microbiome and how it affects cancer and fertility and the peristaltic motion of endometrial tissue and how it might affect conception and whether we can develop smart tampons that link to your phone and can diagnose endometriosis. And these are amazing things that have only really happened in the last kind of 10 years or so. So although there are big gaps, I think there's a huge appetite 
for more funding, more research, more investigation. And if we can just keep that momentum going and convince the powers that be that this is maybe an interesting area to look at, then I think there's a lot more we can learn. Brilliant. So there's definitely hope for the future. Well, I mean, if there isn't, then I might as well just stop now. (laughs) It's too depressing to think about. Yeah, I hope there is. Brilliant. So as a last thought, I wanted to ask if there was one thing you could change about the world and the caveat to this might be one thing we could change about the NHS, but one thing we, we could change about the world we live in, which would improve life for birthing people after birth, what would it be? Wow. Um, a cultural sea change in how we value and respect that time period and the people who move through it. And I think if we make that cultural change, then the rest will follow. If you like the sound of Leah's book, Womb, you can pre-order it now from Amazon, Waterstones and other booksellers. I'm going to put a link in the show notes. You can also hear more from Leah on Twitter. She's at, at Hazard underscore Leah and on Instagram at Leah Hazard. Thank you so much for listening today. Please do like us, follow us, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It helps please the algorithm gods and means more people will get to see and hear what we've got to say about postnatal health. If you enjoyed the podcast and you want to leave us a review, even better. Don't forget, you can also follow Mother Bodies on Twitter and Instagram at Mother Bodies, where you can get highlights from each episode and some sneak previews of what's coming up. Thanks again and see you next time. Bye.